chapter 16. We will be looking at verses 16 to 33. As you're turning there, I'm going to open us with prayer. Heavenly Father, we need Your assistance. We need Your assistance because we don't always grasp everything that Your Word has for us. And certainly in our own wisdom and understanding and strength, we would fail to understand and at least apply it. We don't want to be mere listeners of Your Word. We want to obey in every aspect and believe all that it says that our lives really would be conformed to Your truth so that we could stand out in this world as genuine lights, that it would be obvious that we are indwelt by God Himself. But we also ask for Your assistance because life is painful, and full of sorrow. And we don't always understand what you are up to in allowing the various things that take place in our lives and in the lives of our friends and, and even strangers. And we want to we want to understand and therefore respond appropriately and pray in line with the work that you are doing. And so we ask that You would use Your Word to direct us and assist us towards that end. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So why should you pray? I think there are many answers that could be given. But if a coworker were to ask you, or maybe just a friend or a neighbor, believer or unbeliever, and they asked, why do you pray? What would you answer them? Why do you pray? Really? What is the effectual role of prayer in our lives? I think those are the questions that Jesus will answer for us in today's passage. So looking again at John chapter 16, read with me beginning at verse 16. He says, A little while and you will see me no longer. And again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while you will see me? And because I'm going to the Father? So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me again, and a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. But the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful. But your sorrow 
will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So this is a sobering moment in the lives of the disciples. Jesus is being very straightforward with the challenges that they're going to be faced with. And the summation of the encouragement that he gives them is that they will be blessed in his going away through the presence of the Holy Spirit who is coming to them. And he's trying to clarify to them the tremendous blessings that are theirs now because of his presence. That is the Holy Spirit's. And last week we saw Jesus' emphasis of the ministry of the Holy Spirit on, in conviction and in revelation. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He convicts us of the truth and then he also reveals the truth to us, both through inspiration and illumination of the scriptures. And this week, Jesus goes from emphasizing the blessings of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit's role in giving us the Word of God and presenting the Word of God to us. He goes from talking about the Word of God to now speaking to prayer. And what a very fitting way to begin a new year, but in God's sovereignty to talk about the importance of the Word of God in our lives. And then right after that, to be able to talk about the importance of prayer. And this passage is almost all about why we should pray. And in essence, the three reasons that Jesus gives are pray because life is full of sorrow and pain. Pray because the Father loves you. And pray because we rarely understand God's purposes. And so the way this really looks is that that first point, pray because life is full of sorrow and pain, is the context of life 
Really, this is, this is why we pray, because life is hard. That's why we pray. And our prayers come forth in that aspect of life. And then the second two points really point to a truth about God that will inspire our prayers. And then truth about ourselves, namely our weaknesses. And it's in light of God's love for us and our desperate need for understanding that should prompt us to pray. Let's look at the first point. And we'll spend the majority of our time on that truth. Pray because life is full of sorrow and pain. And as we've been discussing the past few weeks, the disciples are not enjoying this conversation. This has been extremely difficult for them. They're discouraged and confused, and they're struggling to make sense of what Jesus is trying to communicate. And what's been particularly difficult in their wrestling with trying to understand what he's saying is their own expectations. They came into the night expecting one thing, and Jesus is telling them something that's completely outside of what they assumed was going to happen. And they're also confused by Jesus' attempts to comfort them. See, they don't understand how his departure is actually going to work out for their benefit. And how their persecution should actually be something that's going to be comforting to them. And then again in verse 16, their confusion just gets amplified even more when Jesus says that they're not going to see him. And then they are going to see him. They have, what, what is he talking about? As you see again in verse 16, a little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. And so within this, the disciples are totally confused. What is this that he says to us? That you're going away and then coming back. And so it's understandable why they're confused. Jesus is actually being purposefully vague here because he understands if he were to be very explicit, and give all the details of where he's going and he's coming back. Like they, they wouldn't have the categories even to grasp it if he told it to them. All that they need to grasp now is that he's going to be gone for a short while and they'll see him again. And so even when he seeks to clarify again, notice he still just gives them a little bit of information. Verse 19. Is this why what you're asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. That's what Jesus clarifies. They're confused, and he just wants to boil it down. This is what I want you to understand. You're going to weep and lament, but then there's going to be joy. That's what you need to grasp. You don't need all the details. You just need to know that is the reality of the situation you're facing in the near future. Yet even though they're going to have sorrow, it's only going to be temporary. It will turn to joy. And he illustrates this with childbirth. Verse 21. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish For joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you will have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. Now, I personally have not experienced childbirth, but I have witnessed it a few times. 
And I've witnessed with that both its pains and it's also joys. And the disciples' separation from Christ is going to be like that, he says. It is going to hurt far more than you expect. But understand that even though you, are, you will be undergoing severe pain and confusion beyond your expectations, there will come joy afterwards that will make it all worth it. It's all worth it for the joy that follows. And then Jesus gives another remarkable promise regarding this joy that will be theirs. He says, no one will take your joy from you. And this is because their joy is not going to be rooted in fluctuating circumstances. But it's going to be rooted in the permanent presence of the Holy Spirit who will not leave them. Due to the permanently effectual work of Christ on the cross. After Christ has died and risen again, that work, as we sang just minutes ago, it is finished. It's done. And that, therefore, the Holy Spirit is, uh, will indwell believers permanently as a sign that they are saved, that they are His. He will not be taken away from them. And that is where the root of their joy comes from, as we've been reading earlier in John. So what will bring them joy is something that will never change. And as I read that, I was reminded of um, what I read earlier this week in Psalm 4 in my um, plan to read through the Bible. I came across Psalm 4 and the psalmist writes this in verse 7. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. And he's speaking of his enemies. You put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, Lord, make me to dwell in safety. His joy comes from the presence of God. That's what allows him to have peace and to dwell in safety. It's not his grain and wine abounding. It's the presence of God. That's what allows him to sleep peacefully at night. Speaking of sleep, even just this last evening... Uh, there was a number of things on my mind, and I was having trouble sleeping. I woke up in the middle of the night and was trying to even apply some of these things uh, that I've been learning in John uh, to quiet my soul. And um, I tried to focus my mind after praying for some time on some spiritual truth. And I came across this story about R.A. Torrey, who was a great pastor from Chicago, a professor. He's uh, probably most known for being the founder of uh, the Bible Institute of Los Angeles, otherwise known as Biola University. And this is a story from their life, taken from a biography. It says the doctor, Mrs. Torrey, was given a family of four daughters and one son. One of the greatest trials that ever came to their home was when Elizabeth, a sweet, winsome child of nine years of age, died in Chicago. She was suddenly seized with diphtheria, but rallied from the attack and all danger seemed over. Perfectly satisfied with her progress, her parents went downstairs from her room. A moment later, the nurse called to them and rushing up to the child they had just left, they saw with anguish the young wife go out. It was a terrible blow to Mr. and Mrs. Torrey. 
all the other children had been sent away from home. And the father had the sad duty of telling them of the departure of their loved little sister. They could not even go to see her. All they could do was stand across the street and look up at the house where their little sister lay asleep. No one was allowed to go to the funeral due to the order of the health authorities. And in a pitiless storm, only the father and mother and one dear friend stood with breaking hearts at the grave and watched the coffin as it was lowered into the cold ground. They could not go back to the house as it was in the hands of the health authorities and had to find accommodation in a hotel. And that night there was a terrific thunderstorm which lasted till morning. And on his way to the institute to lecture to the students, an overpowering feeling of loneliness came over Dr. Tory. And as there was no one in the sight on the street, he just burst out into the cry, Oh, Elizabeth, Elizabeth. And in a moment, the Spirit of God flooded his heart with a joy and a rapture he had never known before. And a sweet rest and peace entered his soul. And I read that story because I think it's helpful to be reminded from real people that this is not just pie-in-the-sky idealism. This is real. This man just lost his daughter. And the next day, his heart was flooded with a joy out of no- just coming from out of nowhere. This was not just some flighty man just in the throes of some worship experience. It was in the genuine grief as he was expressing it alone. An intelligent, sensual, but desperate for the peace that surpasses understanding. As Jesus says in verse 22, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. And you might be asking yourself, well, what's he talking about here? And the disciples were. As we said, Jesus is being purposely vague. But I think I, by putting what he says here along with other scriptures that we have, we have a lot more information than the disciples did, of course. It appears that Jesus is actually referring uh, to the time before and after his resurrection that they're going to face as he goes to the cross and dies, and also the time before and after his second coming, after he's ascended, and then there's that period of time before he returns. So like with many eschatological prophecies, it seems that there's a a near fulfillment that these disciples experience, and also a later fulfillment, an ultimate fulfillment. And I say that because both are true. They did have extreme sorrow, joy when they saw their Lord again. And then also, these men suffered terribly for Christ after His ascension. And so have most Christians ever since. And I think it's also helpful as I I recognize how Jesus' words here in John 16 parallel so well Paul's words in Romans 8. And so I'd encourage you to flip over to Romans 8 and look particularly at verse 22. 
beginning in verse 22. There is much parallel in Romans 8 with where we, what we've been discussing in John, but I just want to highlight this section for the sake of time. He says, beginning in verse 22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, that is, we have been groaning, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. I highlight because that is our experience now. That is our experience now. We sorrow and groan as we wait for Christ to return when that sorrow will no longer be. What I want to point out is just how explicit Jesus is being and how Paul is being and how Peter has been that Jesus and the apostles do not promise for the Christian that life is going to be full of sunshine. In fact, if anything, they suggest suggest the latter. It's going to be hard. Pain is normative. But both the apostles and Jesus promise us joy. And so the question I think for us is, given, it, it, I'm not surprised that the Bible says life is hard because it is. Right? We don't need the Bible to tell us that. That's obvious. What of this joy? If this is true, how do we access such joy? Where does it come from? How do we access joy in the midst of the trials of this life? Well, the answer is through prayer. Look at verse 23. In that day, that is the day of your sorrow and lament. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. See the connection? Context of sorrow and pain. Ask, that is pray, so that your joy may be full. See, previously they had only asked Jesus when they needed something. They'd gone to Jesus if they wanted something. If they had questions about why an event was taking place. They were confused about something he said. They went directly to him. But after his death and resurrection, they're no longer going to be making requests of Jesus because he won't be there. But not just that. They're now going to have direct access to the Father. They can go to God the Father themselves. And this seems to be his point, that they're going to be taking his place. So you notice the familiar phrase, in Jesus' name. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Now the disciples can ask in Jesus' name. That means as if they were Jesus. They're coming in His name. And the Father will grant their His requests. And so there's this strong sense uh, from Jesus as He's saying, you are replacing me as God's ambassadors into the world. It's through me, through you, the disciples, in the power of the Holy Spirit, you are going to complete my work. And as my replacements of grace into the world, 
You can ask in my name and the Father will give you what you need so that your joy may be full. And so, of course, this is going to temper the nature of the requests. If they're coming in Jesus' name, they're not going to be asking for, you know, little perks for life. They're going to be asking for things that are in line with the mission, in line with what Jesus would want. And think about the things that Jesus prayed for. We're going to see a great example starting next week, John 17. Think about how Jesus prayed. That's how we should pray. In line with His goals and His mission. So these requests are not to be flippant and self-centered, but focused on the needs of the mission. I think as an illustration, uh, whenever I have to do any travel uh, for the Navy, um, they require us to hold a government travel card. And so any travel expense that we have needs to get charged to that card. And then we get reimbursed with it later on. But... If, that, if I use that card, it'll work on for purchasing anything. But if I use it to purchase food or to purchase you know, souvenirs, and I try to get reimbursed for it, for it I'm not going to get reimbursed. Because it's only for the purpose of the mission. That's kind of how prayer is supposed to be. John Piper, often when he speaks on prayer, uh, uses another analogy. And he says, prayer is like a wartime walkie-talkie, not like a domestic intercom and so if you use a wartime walkie-talkie and uh, for calling up the butler to bring you you know another cup of tea it's going to malfunction and the purpose of prayer is to accomplish the needs of the mission not to pad your life and that's what jesus is communicating you are now my um replacements in a sense as far as proclamation of the gospel into the world. And so now you will have direct access to the Father and you can ask and therefore receive full joy. But what they need to make sure is that the things that they're asking for are the things that will really bring them joy. They need to ask for the things that will really bring them joy, not the things that their flesh just might immediately tempt them to think will bring them joy. So that, that phrase, that your joy may be full. Notice, this tells us two things. First of all, that God wills that you would have full joy. That is God's will for your life. He wants you to be full of joy. He does not want you to be miserable. He does not want you to be lonely. He does not want you to be in anguish. Will he allow those things? Yeah. But he'll also give joy, full joy in the midst of those things. We can have full joy. That's the second thing it tells us. We can have full joy if we pray rightly. See, true joy will result if we make the right requests. God will answer those requests and make our joy full. That's the promise that's given. It's a promise. Cling to this. It's a promise, and God does not lie. But in order to make such requests, we have to believe that God's will is actually what will bring us joy. That's the hard part, I think, for us. We want to pray in line with His will, but for us, we have to recognize 
His sovereign will is what is truly best for us. The circumstances He has for us right now, what He's dictated and what He has for the future, He and His sovereignty knows what's best for us. And we need to pray in line with His will as it's revealed in Scripture. And that praying in line with His will is what will actually truly bring us joy. So again, putting this back into the context of suffering. When tragedy strikes, it is going to be very rational, very reasonable, understandable to want that pain to go away. And you're going to feel that. And it's not wrong to feel that. It's not wrong to ask for relief from the suffering. But recognize when you pray in Jesus' name, that is according to His aims, you're going to make your requests to the tune of something as what He said in the garden, yet not my will, Father, but Yours be done. This is not just about what's going to make me feel good. This is about, Father, what do You want? I'm Yours. Direct me. And you're going to ask with the understanding that the suffering and pain you are facing is not accidental. It's purposeful. It's not an accident. There's a purpose behind it. And therefore, like Christ who prayed, not my will, but thy will be done, when we pray, we want to identify what God's purpose might be in the trial and then pray that that purpose might be accomplished. That's the pattern. Pray that what God... That God's brought this for a reason and then pray, God, I want your purpose to be accomplished in this. Do it. So in summary, on this first point, the question is, why do we pray? We pray because life is full of suffering and prayer helps us respond rightly to suffering and it makes our suffering fruitful. Prayer is what makes our suffering fruitful. It's praying that God's will would get accomplished. That He would bear both the fruit of the Spirit in our life and that God would use us to bring uh, have a fruitful ministry. That is, people would come to Christ through our example. That we'd be faithful. So we pray because life is full of suffering and prayer helps us respond rightly to suffering. It makes our suffering fruitful. And so when your friend asks, why do you pray? This is, your, this is your answer from John 16. Do you see that? The disciples are about to suffer. And Jesus tells them that they're also going to have joy. And more joy will result as they pray in Jesus' name. That is according to His purposes. And... What gives us confidence to pray in such a way in the midst of suffering is what Jesus says next. Pray because the Father loves you. This is the truth about God that's going to help us know how to pray. And it's actually it's going to give fuel to our prayer. And interestingly enough, this, this may be what Christians struggle with the most, I think, to truly grasp. Maybe. Maybe. Let's see. Verse 25. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. 
In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. In short, the main point that Jesus is trying to communicate to his disciples is really simple. It's that the Father himself truly loves them. That the Father himself truly loves them. They're no longer going to need Jesus as a mediator between them and the Father. They're going to have direct access to the Father. They're not going to need him the way that the Israelites needed Moses to mediate between them whenever they had a request. Of course, Jesus is going to continue to be a mediator, right, in a, um, in a very practical sense, right? It's only our being in him that we have access to the Father. But they're no longer need to go to Jesus in order for a request to be made. They can go directly to the Father. And they can have confidence that he will help them not just because Jesus said, oh yeah, he, he'll be good on his promise. They can have confidence that God's going to answer their prayer because the Father loves them. He really loves them. And I would say maybe the most life-changing paragraph that I ever read in a book outside of Scripture was a commentary of sorts on this passage, on what John is talking about right here, or what Jesus is saying. In John. The the words so endeared the author to my soul. Made such an impact on my life. And I won't get into all the details of it. But it it made. It was of such an impact to me. That I named my firstborn son. After the author. Theologian John Owen. My son's name is Isaiah Owen. After him. And my. And my. Uh, great appreciation and love for John Owen started when I read this paragraph. This is what John Owen, how he explains the text before us. This is what Jesus is saying. Take no care of that, nay, impose that not upon me, of procuring the Father's love for you. But know that this is His peculiar respect towards you, and which you are in Him. He himself loves you. It is true indeed, and as I told you, that I will pray to the Father to send you the Spirit, the Comforter, and with him all the gracious fruits of his love. But yet in the point of love itself, free love, eternal love, there is no need of any intercession for that. For eminently the Father himself loves you. Resolve of that, that you may hold communion with him in it. And be no more troubled about it. Yes, as your great trouble is about the Father's love, so you can no way more trouble or burden Him than by your unkindness in not believing it. That is, what he's saying is the greatest sorrow and burden that you can lay on God the Father, the greatest unkindness that you can do to Him is to not Believe that He loves you. Because think about how He's proven it. God shows His own love for us in that while we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. Or Romans 8.32, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? If God gave up His Son for us, how will He not graciously give us all things that we need? The Father loves you. There is nothing that you could do that could ever separate you from His love. Grasp that. Pray, understanding He loves you. And if He's put you in a painful situation, it's not because anything has gotten in between you and God, but because He loves you that you're there. And pray in light of that. And any of you who are parents should understand what Jesus is trying to communicate here. Because there are times when you feel like your heart couldn't break any more for your child. Because you so desire their good, and yet they don't really believe that you love them. And that what you want from them is really because that is what's truly best for them. In fact, they might rather trust a stranger than you, despite all that you've ever done for them in the past. They don't believe that you love them. And that your instruction to them and your counsel to them is rooted in this immense love that you could, there's no way you could even express it. And often this is how we respond to God. When He doesn't give us what we think we need, or what we think we deserve. Do you really believe He loves you? Do you really believe it? That He really knows what is best for you. And He really wants to do what is best for you. Believe that He loves you. Our prayers are founded on the confidence that God loves us. And if we pray believing that He loves us, really loves us, our prayers are not going to center upon our circumstances changing. God, get me out of this. That's not what's going to center our prayers. Rather, they're going to be, the, our purpose in prayer is going to be submitting our hearts to His will, trusting that He loves us. God, help me, help me to submit myself to you. As even Jesus said, not my will, not, this is, I don't want to go through this, but not what I will, but what you will, because your will is what's best. And just as Jesus trusted the Father, So should we. So why do we pray? Secondly, we pray because we know God loves us. Despite how we feel. Despite what we're going through. We we believe that God loves us. And we pray knowing that we want to submit to His His will. We want to pray in line with His will. So it's imperative for us to grasp the love of God... Because, especially in times of trial, we don't understand what he's doing. We don't understand how he might be using this for his purposes. Which, of course, as we see, that's why we pray. The third point, pray because we rarely understand what God's up to. Even if we know that he loves us, even if we know that life is hard, 
We pray also because we don't understand why God does what He does, how He purposes these various things in our life. Verse 29, His disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. See, the disciples here think that they get it. They think they understand what Jesus is trying to tell them. But they don't. It appears that what they think is simply that he's telling them, hey, I'm the Son of God, I'm going to the Father, and then I'm coming back. And they're like, oh, okay. they, They don't get what Jesus is really trying to tell them when he tells them about the sorrow they're going to go through and the pain. They haven't really grasped what he's trying to tell them. They haven't actually put all the pieces together about his betrayal and his suffering and his leaving. They think they understand, but they don't. They think they imagine what God's up to, but what God is up to is in fact far more glorious and far more painful than they have any concept of. And knowing this, Jesus does not want to leave them in their confidence and their very vulnerable ignorance. And so he tells them straightly, Do you believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. See, they think they understand, but they're actually about to abandon their Lord in His greatest hour of need. They're all about to become colossal failures. They went into this night, remember, thinking, They're on the verge of becoming co-rulers in the kingdom of heaven. That's what they thought. They thought this was going to be their greatest hour. And in fact, it's going to be their worst. They're about to abandon their Lord to the wolves. And yet Jesus, knowing that this is what they're going to do, knowing how confident they are, knowing what they're going to do, they're they're going to split and he's going to be left alone. And Jesus, knowing their upcoming failure, wants to assure them that despite their failure, He will not truly be alone. Father's going to be with Him. You might, at that point, be wondering, what about Jesus' statement on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How does that fit here? I think this suggests that up until the crucifixion, that the Father was with Jesus. And that the separation that took place within the Trinity didn't take place until Christ took the Father's wrath for our sin on the cross. And notice that Jesus' point that the Father will be with Him isn't meant for His own reassurance. Jesus isn't saying that like, oh, alright, yeah, okay, but you're going to leave me, but God's going to be with me, so I'm good. He's not telling himself that. He's telling this to the disciples. 
He's concerned about the disciples that they would recognize when they realize what they've done, that they would realize that even though they failed, God the Father will not fail Christ. And the only reason the Father did not remain with Jesus throughout His ordeal is because of the purposeful plan of the cross to take our sins. He, there had to be a separation for Jesus to be a propitiation for our sin. That had to happen. And even though that had to happen for Jesus, it will never happen for a Christian. There is nothing that will ever separate you from the love of God. Paul emphasizes that in the most grandiose, I mean, that's the wrong word, explicit way possible. In Romans 8, neither life nor death nor angels nor principality nor things present nor things come nor life nor death nor any other created thing. I'm probably even missing some things. Will be able to separate you from the love of Christ because of what Jesus did in this moment. Verse 33, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. Because in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So the question is, where does this peace come from? Amidst the world full of tribulation, it comes from knowing the Father's love and presence. And that His sovereign Son has overcome the world. So how do we access that peace that surpasses all understanding that Paul speaks of? How do we access that peace that accompanied Christ to the cross? Remember he says, my peace I give to you. Right? That kind of peace. The peace that's, that's grasping Christ right now as he's, as he's not thinking of himself right now and being self-pitiful. But he's thinking completely of them. That's how at peace he is about doing what the Father has called him to do. Where does that come from? How do we get it? We access it through prayer. So you recognize that peace isn't the result of finally understanding what God is up to. That's not where the peace is coming from. In fact, Jesus assumes you're not going to get it. You think you get it, but you don't get it. So he doesn't say, understand all that the Lord is up to, and you will have peace. But rather, peace comes as a result of their prayers. So why do we pray? We pray... Because we don't know what is best for us. We don't. It's part of our weakness. It's part of our brokenness. I mean, it's, conf- it's hard. Life is hard. Following Christ, making sense of the Scripture is hard. And so we pray. Finally, I just want to point out to you the parallels in this passage with the fruit of the Spirit. Maybe you notice these things. But follow me. Jesus calls us to pray so that we might glorify the Father through bearing fruit. We saw that earlier, a couple weeks ago. 
We glorify the Father through bearing spiritual fruit. And the first three fruit of the Spirit mentioned in Galatians 5, remember, are love, joy, and peace. Now notice the fruit highlighted in verses 16 through 24. Joy. And then in 25 through 28, love. And then 29 through 33, peace. That's not accidental. Jesus is coming around again and saying, my peace I will give to you. You have the Father's love. You have my love. Abide in my love and love one another with that love and that joy. So the point is, is the context of the Christian life is painful. The, the most of the promises that we are given as the children of God, we will not fully again and we reign with him. Most of those promises are not for right now. What you can be promised of right now is life is going to be hard. It's going to be painful. People are going to die. You're going to lose friends. Relationships are going to be broken. You're going to be humiliated. You're going to be heartbroken again and again and again. And and you're going to be tempted to want to harden your heart, to to flee, to, to save yourself, to protect yourself, thinking that if I can just isolate myself, from either just from this trial or from all trials, then I can have the joy. Then I can have the peace. Then I can have the security. But the reality is you can't flee it. It's in the world. You will have tribulation. So the, the fruit doesn't come from getting your life perfectly situated so you avoid pain. The pain's inevitable. But you can bear the fruit of the Spirit As you have guidance in the Word of God, you learn truth, and as you pray, and you ask God to be in you in the midst of the trial. So that's how we should pray. Bear fruit in my life. Help me to be effective for the purposes of which you've put me on this earth. God, I don't have peace. Give me this peace. And at least help me to see why I'm not having peace. Help me to see what I need to change about my expectations, about my loves, about my idolatry. Help me to see my life as you see it. And there's going to be times, often, maybe most of the time, where you have no idea how to pray. This is what's so beautiful. We saw this in our community group this week. In Romans 8, this amazing promise is given. When Paul says, and we don't know often how we should pray. I should read it to you. Instead of just quoting it off the top of my head because I'll butcher it. Verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. There's going to be time you have no idea how to pray. You know how you pray at that time? Spirit, I have no idea what you're up to. Pray for me. Spirit, pray for me and help me. Help me in the midst of my confusion, in my lostness, in my pain. And help me in my mind, in my thinking, in my will to be in line with yours. Pray for me because I don't even know how to pray for myself. So fruit is the result of abiding. 
which is precipitated by obedience to the Word of God. And it's brought about through prayer. So essentially, in summary, it is the fruit of the Spirit and the fruit of changed lives that we should be asking for in the midst of life's pain. It is the fruit of the Spirit and the fruit of changed lives that we should be praying for as we experience life's trouble and hardship now. And so with me, please pray. Father, help us to be people who pray in the Spirit. And then therefore people who walk in the Spirit. And who live according to the Spirit. So that we would bear fruit. We'd bear fruit as lights in this world, but we'd also bear fruit in the midst of our trials. That we would have love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and humility. That, that people would see we are very real. This is not, this is not just uh, painted faces. This is not just hypocrisy, but, but that we really have joy. We really have peace and we really live in the midst of pain. So that we would actually have hope to offer people who also live in the midst of pain and yet have no hope. That they would see in us that there is something very real and something very outside of mere natural explanation. Make us such a people. And Father, if that means trials, if that means more brokenness and more humiliation, Do it. Because we know You love us. But as You direct us in whatever path You have for us, continue to reassure us of Your love and continue to bring more brothers and sisters alongside us that we might be sustained in the challenges of this life and help us to know how to pray so we would see this fruit manifest itself so that you would be glorified, and so that our joy would be full. Amen.